0: Okay, we are in Acts chapter 15, and I'm just going to jump right in here for the sake of time. Let me give you a brief update to bring us up to speed, because I was gone uh, last week. In Acts chapters 13 and 14, of course, Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey. And if we were to go here, we can trace it. See if I can get this back. But here we go. And you can see the blue line. They travel here to Cyprus, they go to Salamis, and Paphos, I want you to pay special attention to Paphos, because that's going to come up tonight. They're going to travel up to Perga, depending on how far we get. Perga is also going to come up. They travel following this blue line to Lystra, to Derby, and then the red line going back home. When they get back to Antioch, you remember that... They are there for a while. They're talking about the journey. They're talking about the conversion of all the Gentiles, the congregations that were established. And then some people, some Jews from, let's see, oops. I thought I put uh, an arrow on there. Let me see if I can find that one. That's it. There we go. All right. Very good. They uh, look so much like, alike, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But Okay they have returned back to Antioch, and then we've got uh, this arrow indicating that from Judea and Jerusalem, there's a group of people who travels up here to Antioch, and it is Christians who used to be Jews, but they are still trying to bind the law of Moses, and they're particularly uh, hard down on the subject of circumcision. I believe that it is also during this time that uh, Peter pulls away from the um, Gentile Christians, and as a result of that, Paul rebukes him to, the, to his face, and the Bible indicates that there is just a knockdown dragout. drag-out. There is a heated dispute over this issue of trying to bind the Law of Moses. So, what is finally decided is they are going to travel from up here in Antioch, and they are going to go back down to Jerusalem, so I just reversed the arrow here, They're going to go back to Jerusalem, and they're going to meet with the apostles, and they're going to settle this issue once and for all. So in Acts chapter 15 and verse 7, Peter stands up and he speaks. You've got Paul there. You've got Barnabas there. They've come down from Antioch to address this problem, and a group of people came with them, and they start to debate this thing. And so Peter speaks in Acts 15 and verse 7, and he acknowledges the fact that In the beginning, God gave him the blessing, the opportunity to teach the Gentiles. Who was the first Gentile convert that Peter taught? Cornelius. And so, he reflects back to that. Cornelius and Cornelius' house, and he talks about that. And he says, God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that counts circumcision. There's no distinction. And... To prove this, what ends up happening is the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles and they haven't been circumcised. And Peter points to that and he says, look, God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles and He accepted them without circumcision. Who are you to say they can't be accepted without circumcision? That's the point that Peter is making here. And so, in Acts 15 and verse 10. He says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? That is, he's saying, you're trying to bind the Old Testament law? Why would you do that? We weren't able to keep the Old Testament law, so the Lord's done away with it, and what do you do? You go back and tell the Gentiles they've got to keep the Old Testament law. That doesn't make any sense. And two weeks ago when the bell rang, I told you about the uh, discussion that was taking place where there were some brethren in Missouri who uh, were saying that I'm a false teacher because I'm saying that 1 John chapter 1 teaches if we walk in the light, we have continual cleansing. And I won't get back into that discussion again, except to say, brethren who reject what 1 John 1, 7 through 7-9 teaches, they're doing the same thing as these folks. They're putting a yoke on us that is too heavy to bear. That is, they're setting a standard that is impossible. All right, verse number 11. Peter says, but we believe that through grace, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That is, the Jews and the Gentiles will be saved in the same way. Incidentally, these are the last recorded words of Peter in the book of Acts. Alright, this is about where we left off, so we're going to pick up in verse number 12, and David's going to be our reader.
1: Acts 15, 12. (laughs) Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles.
0: Okay, it says, then all the multitude kept silent. When Peter got through talking, there was silence. Now... Keep in mind, the people have been arguing about this thing. The Jews who were trying to bind the old law, who were trying to bind circumcision, they're heated about this. Peter stands up and speaks, and he says, you know that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, and they had not been circumcised. God's made no distinction between us. When Peter gets through with his speech, there's silence. What would that indicate to you? Yeah, they couldn't gain say. It's like, all right, we don't know what to say next. It's kind of like he's gotten us here. All right? Then Paul and Barnabas begin to speak, and they declare the many miracles and wonders that God had done amongst the Gentiles. What was the purpose of God doing miracles? We talked about this a lot when we were back in Acts chapter 2. What was the purpose of miracles? To confirm the word. Mark 16 and verse 20, the Lord told the disciples that they were to go everywhere preaching the word, and it says the Lord went with them confirming the word with signs and miracles. The purpose of the miracles was to confirm the message. The speaking in tongues was to confirm the message. The healing was to confirm the message. So when they go and start teaching Gentile churches, what do we see? They declared how with many miracles and wonders, God worked amongst the Gentiles. Why? Same thing. He's confirming the word amongst the Gentiles. All right? Verse
1: 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me.
0: Okay. After Paul and Barnabas got through speaking, James, which James is this? How many James are there in the New Testament? There's at least four. Uh, This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is significant because you may remember that in the early days prior to the crucifixion, Jesus' brothers rejected him. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. But after the resurrection, you've got a complete turnaround. And James, the brother of Jesus, becomes a prominent figure in the church. He's a leader. He's an elder in the church in Jerusalem, and he goes on to write what? The book of James. That's right. So James, the brother of Jesus, after there's a silence, he stands up and says, men and brethren, listen to me. All right? Verse 4.
1: Simon, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name.
0: Okay. He said, Simon spoke first. Who Simon. As Peter, he said, Peter just spoke and he told us about how he went to the Gentiles, verse 15.
1: And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written.
0: Okay, he said that Peter told us how the Word of God went to the Gentiles. And he's going to say, the Old Testament agreed with this. We shouldn't have been surprised. This was prophesied. And he's getting ready to quote here from Amos chapter 9, and verses 11 and 12. In fact, the next two verses, verse 16 and 17 of Acts 15, he's going to, it's not an exact quote, but he basically paraphrases Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Um, So let's go ahead. And incidentally, there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament that reference the Gentiles coming into the church. If you go to Romans 15 and verse 9, there's a whole list of them right there. In Romans 15 and verse 9, there's a quotation from Psalms, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, from Second Samuel, all of which are referring to the Gentiles coming into the church. So this shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jews, although they act like it is. All right, uh, let's go ahead and read 16. This is the quote from Amos chapter 9.
1: After this, I will return and will, and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up.
0: Okay. He quotes from Amos chapter 9, an Old Testament prophecy, where the Lord said, the day is going to come, and I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. This is probably one of the most popular verses that's used in premillennialism today. Does anybody have any idea what I'm talking about when I say that? How do premillennialists use this? Who are premillennialists? Okay, premillennialism, the pre means before, millennial refers to a thousand year period. Those who believe in premillennialism, there's a lot of different versions of premillennialism, so it's hard to say this is exactly what premillennialists believe. kind of a a generic form of it, is that they believe that in the very near future, Jesus is coming. They will say Jesus is coming soon. The way you can tell it, they say, is by the signs of the times. You can look around and see the things that are happening. Very soon, there's going to be a rapture, and then all of the saved are going to disappear, and it won't be long after that that the Lord is going to come and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and he's going to reign for a thousand years. Now, one of the signs that the end is about to happen, according to them, is the temple, the Old Testament temple, is going to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. So when you see that happening, when you, if anything is ever mentioned about a temple or the Jews taking control on the hill, they will say, The end's about to come, and they point to this. In fact, if you have a Schofield Reference Bible, have you all heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? It is a very popular reference Bible. It is a, basically, it's a premillennial Bible. They have gone through, Schofield went through, and he added notes uh, that relate to premillennialism, and he said, this is what I think this is and what I think this is, he has real, He really popularized premillennialism. He said that this verse in Amos chapter 9 and verse 11 is the most important dispensational passage in the New Testament. So he said this passage is pointing to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Did you have a comment, Brian, or were you... I had not heard that. You, you know, um, there is, um, someone handed me a flyer, and I've got it in my office, and they asked me if I would speak about this soon, but I believe that, I just glanced at it, and I haven't read it yet, but I think someone's about to hold a seminar in this area about that, and they ask if I would address it, so i have to look at that and uh, see, but anyway, Amos 9 and verse 11, they believe, is a very important premillennial verse, in truth, this is not talking about a physical temple at all. What is the context in which this is being brought up? He is pointing out the fact that God is going to accept the Gentiles. That's the whole discussion here. And so when he talks about the tabernacle of David being rebuilt, the, taber- the word tabernacle means a dwelling place. It's a tent. It's a building. And so The tabernacle, the the temple, the kingdom, the family of David is going to be rebuilt. How is the family of David going to be rebuilt? Now, the promise that eventually comes through David goes back even further than David. The promise that comes through David goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, um, is that what he's talking about here? Let's keep reading and I'm going to tie some verses together for you in just a minute let's go ahead and read for, go ahead and read 16 and 17 together so we'll get them in context
1: after this i will return and we and we'll rebuild the tabernacle of david which has fallen down i will rebuild its ruins and i will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the lord even all the gentiles who are called by my name says the lord who does all these things
0: okay now, I want you to notice a couple of inconsistencies, and then I'm going to show you what, this, what the, he's talking about here. It is said that this is referring to the temple. They say in verse 16, the Lord says, After this, I'm going to come. That is, I'm going to come back to this earth. I'm going to rebuild the temple that has fallen. Then the rest of mankind, who's he talking about? Even the Gentiles, uh, they will know my name. They will be able to be saved. Now, let's put this in perspective. If that's what it means, what you have is the end of time is going to come. The Lord's going to come to this earth. He's going to, the, the temple's going to be rebuilt. The Lord's going to sit on the throne of David and reign for a thousand years. And then the rest of the world will be able to seek the Lord and see his glory, even the Gentiles. What does that mean about the Gentiles? We're not there yet, and we won't get there until this comes. Now, that tells us something is backwards. When are the Gentiles going to be able to see the glory? Well, it's going to be whenever this happens. So, since the Gentiles are already a part of the church, and that's the very argument that Peter is making here, we have to understand that whatever he's referring to took place back at the time that the Gentiles... Came into the church. Now, this is what he's talking about. When you see him mention in verse number 16, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, he's talking about the family of David, the dwelling place of David, the kingdom of God that was promised in the Old Testament. How's he going to do that? You keep reading in verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles. What is he telling us? The family of God, the kingdom of God, is going to be rebuilt. But this time, it's going to be rebuilt so that that kingdom is going to include the rest of mankind, even the Gentiles. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church. Does that fit with what he's saying? Did the Gentiles come in at the time that the church started? Yeah, shortly thereafter. And then, at the time that Peter is speaking, were the Gentiles a part of the church? And were they allowed to seek the Lord? Yes, that's the reason he's bringing it up at this point in time. Because he is saying, look, we're having this squabble about whether or not the Gentiles are allowed to seek the Lord and whether they're going to be included, just like the Jews are. And he says, let's look back at this prophecy from Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the Lord prophesied that the day was going to come, that He was going to set up the family, and He was going to reestablish the kingdom, and the Gentiles were going to be a part of it, and they would be allowed to seek the Lord. This is that time. That's what he's saying. Peter wasn't saying, hey, you remember the prophecy that some point, several thousand years from now, the Lord's going to rebuild His kingdom, and then the Gentiles would be allowed to seek the Lord? That doesn't make a bit of sense in this context. It doesn't make a bit of sense when you look at the chronology of the Gentiles. Peter identifies this for us, that this is not talking about what the premillennialists are saying. All right, So he says the rest of mankind, even the Gentiles, would be allowed to call upon the Lord. I want you to look at a couple of other verses here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. All right, I always try to make that big enough that y'all can read it, but sometimes it's deceptive on my computer versus what it looks like up there. Galatians chapter 3, I told you this issue about the Jews and the Gentiles accepting each other, particularly the Jews accepting the Gentiles. This is a huge issue through the rest of the New Testament. There are Jews who keep trying to force Judaism on the Gentiles. Galatians deals with it, Ephesians deals with it, Colossians deals with it, And a large portion of the book of Romans deals with this. So in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The Jews considered themselves the sons of Abraham. He says those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith "...preach the gospel to Abraham, saying, and you will all of the nations of the earth be blessed." He said, and lo- in fact, look at the next verse here, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, "...now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abraham, get out of your country, and in you shall all of the families of the earth be blessed." Way back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promised to Abraham that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, what happens? First, he starts with the Jews, and the Messiah is going to come. That's how all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then, we see that running through the family of David. The Lord is eventually going to raise up the tabernacle of David, and he refers back to this. Remember when I told Abraham the whole world was going to be blessed through him? It happened through the Jews. It happened through the family of David. I'm going to resurrect it now, and... All of the families, even the Gentiles, he stresses, are going to be blessed. All of this traces back to Genesis chapter 12 and the church. It's all about the church. It's all about the kingdom. And Daniel 2 and verse 44, he prophesied about the church. He said, in the days of these kings will the God of heaven set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. He says, that kingdom will not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms. See, the tabernacle, the kingdom of David, is going to be set up again. When? When the Gentiles can seek the Lord. This is what all this is about. I know I'm I'm probably doing some overkill here, but I'm trying to make the point is the opposite of what we are being taught, and what we are taught in the religious world does not fit the chronology that's laid out here. All right,
1: let's keep going. Verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Keep going. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them and abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood.
0: Okay. He says, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles and tell them they have to be circumcised. We're not going to tell them they have to keep the law of Moses. Why? Why? because the Lord accepted them already when He gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, because we weren't able to keep that, and it's been prophesied all along that the Lord was going to accept the Gentiles and that they would be part of the family through faith. He said, but there's three things we are going to tell the Gentiles that they have to do. Here they are. He said they're going to have to abstain from things polluted by idols, they're going to have to stay away from sexual immorality, and they're going to have to stay away from things strangled and from blood. It's interesting that he, or that they chose these three things. We're going to tell the Gentiles, they don't have to be circumcised, but they do have to stay away from things polluted by idols. We're not going to tell them that they've got to keep the holy days, but they do have to avoid sexual immorality. We're not going to tell them that they have to uh, keep the food restrictions, that they can't eat pork, but they do have to avoid things that were strangled and they can't eat or drink blood. Let's break these down and talk about them. First, he says, they have to abstain from things polluted by idols. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the worship of idols that would have been very, very prominent in the New Testament. And not just worshiping idols, but he says things polluted by idols. What's he talking about? Things, what would be polluted by an idol? Okay, things that were offered to them. The thing, one thing that was very popular amongst the Gentile world is many of these cities would have a deity that they would worship, and they would have a temple there, and they would have priests and priestesses that served in that temple. And so what would happen is, if you wanted to make a sacrifice to this particular false god, you would take usually an ox, and you would take it there, and they would cut the tail off, and they would offer it on the, on the, the burnt offering to that god. Well, then they would take that meat, and they would offer it, And you and your friends who came for this offering, you would eat together. And then whatever meat is left, they would give it to the priest or the priestesses of that temple. And then whatever meat was left, they would sell it off. Now, one of two things would happen to it. Sometimes there was basically a a butcher shop that was attached to the temple. So you might have the Temple of Diana and right next door is the Temple of Diana butcher shop. And that's basically what it was. And so some of that would go into that particular meat shop, and the proceeds would go back to the temple. Sometimes they would sell this meat off, the priest and priestesses, they would just sell it to the marketplace. And that might be back down the hill, and it was totally different. In the marketplace, when people would go to buy meat, Maybe it came from the temple. Maybe it didn't come from the temple. They didn't know. At that point, it's a totally different situation. This became a huge question in the first century because Gentiles who became Christians are now worried about this. When I go to buy the meat, what about what if this meat was offered to an idol? I don't know. I don't want to eat this meat if it was offered to an idol. This becomes a gigantic deal that gets addressed multiple times in the New Testament. So he said, don't eat meat that's been polluted by an idol. So what does that mean? That raises a lot of questions. One of the things seemed to be this. If one of your friends says to you, come eat this feast with me, we offer this meat to... An idol God, come join us to partake of this. Could you do that? Why couldn't you do that? That's been polluted. What if you said, I'm going to go next door to the temple of Diana butcher shop and I'm gonna buy some meat there. Could you do that? No, why not? Okay, it's been polluted. There's an association Plus, you, do you want to buy that meat and the proceeds are going to go back to that temple? What if, however, it gets sold down, down the hill and it's in the marketplace and you just go buy some meat from some, some butcher who bought meat from this place? Is it okay to do that? Okay. Pa- okay. Paul does address that. Now, let me show you a couple of things here. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. A Christian knows that an idol is nothing but a piece of metal or a piece of wood shaped like whatever animal or deity they choose. He says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Verse 7, however, there is not. So his point there is, if you buy it in the marketplace, you can eat it. You know that it's nothing. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with the consciousness of the idol until now, they eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So what does he say? There might be some Christian, and he sees that meat being offered in the marketplace. It's not connected, but he might think to himself, oh man, I know, I know where he got that meat. I can't eat that meat. And he says to the one who feels that way, don't eat it. Why? It's violating his conscience. If you feel like this is a wrong thing to do and that you're somehow honoring that false deity, he says, don't do it. Because if you're violating your conscience, you're sinning. He says, now somebody else, he knows it's not connected to the idol. This businessman bought it, and now he's selling it. We know that an idol is nothing. It's all right. Now, it comes up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 25. Whatever is sold in the meat market, he says, that would be back down the hill. He says, asking no question for conscience sake. That is, don't go and say, was this meat offered to the idol or was it not? Just buy the meat. He says, Asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, so you've got a Gentile friend who says, Come to my house and eat dinner. Can you go? Yeah, he says, Go ahead and go. He says, If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, he says, Go. Eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, hey, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. Why? Now, you're at your friend's house. You had nothing to do with this. You're not honoring the deity. But as you sit down to eat, and he puts this food out, and he says, oh, by the way, we offered this to the idol earlier, and this is the meat that we have to eat. He says, do not eat it. He says, for conscience sake. Not for, he says, not for your own conscience, but for the sake of the one who told you. What's the point of that? You know that an idol is nothing, but if the person who is feeding it to you, in his mind, there's a connection to that idol, don't partake of it. Why? Okay, you don't want him to think that you're honoring this. You don't want him to think, you don't want to be a stumbling block for him, and you don't want him to think that you're honoring the deity. Can you see how this could get to be a sticky question for Christians living in the first century? And why they were asking, should I eat it under these circumstances? Should I eat under these? And I haven't even gone through all. I just picked out some of the key verses. But you can read through 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 and see how he's slicing and dicing this and saying, Under these circumstances, it's okay to eat it. Under these circumstances, don't. But basically what it amounts to is influence. Is it being connected to the idol? Then don't eat it. Is someone else going to think that you're connecting it to the idol? Don't eat it. If it's not connected and it's not going to cause anyone else to stumble, it's all right to eat it. That's the long and short of it. All right? The bell just rang, but the next thing that we're going to hit next Wednesday night is relating to things that were, um, that have blood in them. And he's going, this question always comes up when it comes to the eating of meat. And people say, what about eating meat? Does this affect any of the, uh, the way I eat my steak? You see the one at the bottom? You shouldn't eat that because it's gross. Um, now, are there biblical implications? We'll talk about that next week, but... Um, but it's just gross, so don't eat that one. The one on the top, maybe the one uh, under, it's okay. But okay, we'll stop there and we'll discuss this what the biblical implication is next week.